Peter. The little, the little brouhaha between the brotherhood. All right, verse 15, Galatians chapter 2. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For though I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So, again, let's set the scenario. Paul is writing, um, and we say the church of Galatians, Galatia is not a city. Galatia is a region. And so there are a number of churches he's writing to. The church in Antioch, the church in Crete. Uh, there's a number of churches he's writing to. And he's writing because after he has gone on his missionary journey and as he has presented the gospel, there were Jews who had become believers who followed him and said Paul wasn't teaching the true gospel. He said that they were saying that if Gentiles truly were going to become Christians, they would have to become Jews. And therefore, uh, the men would have to be circumcised. Then somebody confronted Peter. We don't know who it was. There was a group of people that came and said James sent them, James the brother of Jesus, or we don't know if the Judaizers. But if you remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter, Acts chapter 9 actually, when Peter had this great vision of these unclean animals coming down on a sheet out of heaven, and God said, get up and eat of these things. And Peter said, Lord, I can't. They're not clean. They're not kosher. That's what he's saying. And the Lord said, look it. What I have redeemed uh, is, is completely kosher, so arise and eat. There's no longer clean or unclean in Christ. And that opened the door for him to minister to Cornelius and to have Cornelius and his household be the first Gentiles to believe in Christ. And so Paul was the one who set the standard that said you don't have to eat kosher anymore uh, in order to be a follower of God. You can eat as the Gentiles eat and still love God and still serve him. Somewhere along the line, somebody came along and accused Peter of uh, breaking the law and therefore not presenting, again, a true gospel to the Gentiles, and they chastised him for eating with Gentiles. In other words, eating unkosher food. And so Paul, Peter began to not eat with the Gentiles. Paul got wind of it. And that's what this part of chapter 2 is all about. Last week he confronted him about his, his legalism, his hypocrisy, and his fear. Um, that he was saying one thing, but he's living something else because he was afraid of those who were accusing him of not presenting a true gospel. And so Paul is continuing his conversations with the Galatians, talking and, and at the same time writing to Peter. 
So even though he's writing to the Galatians, he's addressing Peter in this letter as well. And so as it begins, he, he, as we continue on, he's, he wants to affirm Peter to say, look it, I'm, I'm, I'm just not on your case because you're um, now changing the rules and saying that you can't eat with Gentiles. Um, if you eat with Gentiles, you're a sinner and you're no longer saved. And so Paul says, here's the things we have in common. In verses 15 and 16, he says, we who are Jews by nature, in other words, they're born in their bloodline. There's a first for everything. At least they're usually quiet about it when they walk out. But uh, Okay. Yeah. All right, moving on. And here's the great thing. It's going to be on the podcast this week. So it's going to be great. Um, so Paul's saying, we who are Jews by nature, in other words, they were born Jews. They, didn't, they weren't proselyted. Uh, they didn't become Jews sometime in their life. They were born Jews. They're, they're, they're born into Judaism, and they're Jews by blood. So we are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So Paul's showing Peter, that says, look it. We are unified in our theology about this uh, experience of faith. We have both learned in our lives, both being raised as Jews, that no matter how hard we tried, we could not keep all the laws. And because we couldn't keep all the laws, we were falling short of what God intended us to be and how he intended us to live. And so he points out that, that Peter has become inconsistent in his behavior because um, he's, he's suggesting that the Gentiles or Jews... Uh, Jews who had become saved had to keep dietary laws in order to have full fellowship with Christ. And so Paul's saying, look, you, we've got the faith thing. We agree on theology. Salvation comes by faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone, knowing that we are not justified by our works. In other words, there's nothing we can do to earn or to merit our salvation or to earn or to merit God's favor. To, have, to, have, to do something that all of a sudden God says, okay, you, you, you've done enough now, I really like you. That, that when in 1 John it says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us to be a propitiation or a payment for our sins. So here's, knowing that a man is justified, here's, here's what Paul is saying in, in my paraphrase. Peter, you and I both know, we agree, justification does not come when we work for God but when we trust Christ to justify us freely, stop acting as though Gentiles have to do works for God to get right with God. Now, he makes a statement here that I want to clarify because he talks about it again in a moment in verse 17. He talks about being um, not sinners of the Gentiles. Um, so, first of all, Paul isn't saying that... Um, Jews aren't sinners, but Gentiles are. 
Um, and what he means is that he and Peter, as kosher Jews, were not guilty of the constant neglect of dietary laws. So in other words, the Jews believed anyone who did not keep the kosher law as far as dietary requirements, if you ate something the law said you could not eat, you were a sinner. You were put in that category. You were called a sinner, whether you were, particularly it was for Jews at that time. So the um, Paul's saying the sinners of the Gentiles. So Gentiles, on the other hand, were automatically considered to be sinners because they didn't keep the kosher laws of dietary practices. And so um, they didn't know them. They didn't know what the laws were for to be kosher, so they didn't keep them, um, and it wasn't a requirement for them. And so we need to understand that he's not saying Jews because they kept kosher law are not sinners, and the Gentiles because they don't are sinners. Because he said, look, we kept the kosher laws, and we still fell short. We still couldn't be justified. And just so you know, there are a lot of times in Scripture when Jesus and others of sinners and they're not talking about dietary laws. And they're not just talking about, about Gentiles, they're talking about Jews as well when they, when they clarify sinners. In Luke chapter 7, verse 37, behold a woman uh, in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Um, so we know this story, how the disciples got all upset and said, what is she doing? We could sell that and give money to the poor. And Jesus said, hey, you're going to have the poor with you all the time. I'm not here for that long. So let her do what she's doing. Uh, and so she was considered a sinner. Jesus said in, in Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors with Jews. But so because Jesus fellowshiped with non-Jews, well, actually he's fellowshipping with Jews, but also, a lot of tax gatherers were not Jews. A lot of tax gatherers were Romans working for the Roman government. And so, people who did not keep the Jewish law were put in the same category as tax gatherers. They were the guys everybody despised because they just constantly were knocking on your door trying to collect taxes. Those are called sinners. And Mark, uh, in Luke 15, 1 and 2, it says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners... Do near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus was ridiculed for eating with sinners. And then finally in, in Mark 14, then came the third time. He says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Is it enough? Has the hour come? Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. And there he's talking about Judas and the Roman soldiers all coming at the same time to arrest him. So when he's talking about the sinners of the Gentiles, basically what he's talking about is those who did not keep the law according to kosher dietary requirements. He's not saying Jews are not sinners and Gentiles are. So they also, Paul and Peter also shared not only a theology, but they also shared faith. They had the same faith. In the last part of verse 15, it says, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So Paul's point was this, that even as law-keeping Jews, not Gentile sinners, they'd both come to stake 
their lives on Jesus. They had both come to the place to where everything that they lived for, everything that they did was because of the sake of the cross. They trusted Jesus. They showed with their lies that if you try to work your way to heaven, you're going to fail. Paul reminds people of that over and over again. He says, look, if, if being a good Jew was enough to get you to heaven, I should be at the top of the ladder because I was the Jew of all Jews. I was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. I was the guy who knew all the laws and kept all the laws, but it wasn't enough for me to be justified to have entrance into heaven. He ceased to find hope in themselves. They didn't find any justification in any of their actions, in anything they did. They both had come to the point to realize there was nothing they could do to merit God's favor. There was nothing they could do to earn God's grace. The grace was something freely given by faith and at all. Both believe that in Jesus on the cross. And that Paul and Peter both believe that, that Peter was not preaching a gospel other than that, which was the only gospel. And they shared this, this gospel to the place that they both shared it in the way they lived their lives and their faith, except for Peter getting this little hiccup to where he becomes intimidated and he won't with, eat with Gentiles anymore because they're not eating kosher food. And so Paul's implication was, Peter, we share the glorious theology and we have even endorsed it with our own faith. You cannot compel Gentiles to live like Jews. You cannot imply that keeping dietary laws is a work to show themselves to be worthy before God. So he asks, he says, if that were the case, if, that's, if keeping dietary laws were part of salvation, he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. In other words, look at you and I are eating non-kosher. So he's talking about sinners here. He's talking about dietary because that's the thing Peter had given into. So Paul, Paul says, if we, while we seek not to be justified by Christ, we are also found to be in, eating non-kosher food. If that was the basis of salvation, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Does that mean that Christ came to minister sin, that he came so that we could be sinners as the Gentiles and eat non-kosher? He says, certainly not. That's not why Christ came. It's crucial that we see what Paul is admitting and what he's denying. First of all, he's admitting that he, Peter, and other believers are seeking justification, not in the works of law, but only in Jesus. He's saying, Paul, your, Peter, your salvation has not become any stronger because now all of a sudden you've stopped eating with Gentiles. He said, your salvation was not based upon what you eat and what you drink. Your salvation was based upon solely Christ and Christ alone. He's admitting that in doing this, they became sinners. But remember, they became sinners in the sense that, yes, they're eating non-kosher food. But when a Jew trusts Jesus for justification, he's free from the Jewish ceremonial regulations and may, if he chooses, neglect the dietary laws and eat with Gentile brothers and sisters. So he says, according to Jews, they're going to consider us to be sinners. But according to the grace of God, because we are having fellowship with Gentiles, because God has given us permission to do so, that say we have been redeemed from what is unclean. When we eat with Jews and Gentiles, we are sinners in the sense that we are eating non-kosher food, but we are not sinners in the sense that 
non-kosher food, and we will still be justified by faith in Christ, in Christ alone. So that, that, what that does is that says that Jesus was not an agent of sin because it's not a sin to be a sinner in the sense they're talking about. So, Paul is saying that now that God has given us freedom to eat with Gentiles, it is no longer a sin to eat non-kosher food. So he's saying that because it is not a sin to be a sinner in the sense that he's talking about. So it's not a sin to eat with the Gentiles. It's not a sin to free yourself from ceremonial Jewish laws in order to walk in love towards Gentile Christians. It's not a sin to stop depending upon works as the justification for our faith. Christ is not an agent of sin. He's an agent of freedom. Whom the Lord sets free, he sets free indeed. We're no longer in bondage. And so freedom for God and freedom for love is Paul's answer to these Judaizers. These guys who just said, Paul, you're preaching a gospel that isn't fully true because if they're going to be saved, they have to become Jews. Peter, you're not preaching a true gospel because you're eating unclean food with unclean people. And Paul's saying, look it, neither one of those matter anymore because Christ fulfilled the law. Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. Yes, Christ frees us from the works of the law. And no, he is not an agent of sin. And he goes on and he says in, in verse 18 and 19, For if I build again those things as I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. So Paul's saying, look it, if I've been set free from the law, if Christ has set me free from dietary regulations, if Christ has set me free from even if I'm a Gentile having to be circumcised, and I go back and now I say, I have to keep the law, I have to be circumcised, I have to eat only kosher food, then he says, I've become a transgressor because I've added something onto the requirements of salvation. I've said salvation is more that the cross and the, and the death of Christ was not sufficient enough that there had to be more to make it complete. And so, as, as I thought about this, I was reading a, a book this week, and, and I saw this illustration. And, and, and here's what it said. It says that God gave the law originally as a railroad track to guide Israel's obedience. And because I cross railroad tracks every day now, because my time schedule changes now because of trains, this, this really caught hold of me that the engine was supposed to pull a person along the track that was God's grace. And God's grace was present in the Old Testament. But God's grace was only present through the law. So if you kept the law, you experienced the grace of God. If you broke the law, God's grace was broken over you. So the track was God's grace and the power of the Spirit, recognizing this, that the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament... What happened on the day of Pentecost was when he came as a helper and a comforter. But before that, he was the one that still revealed conviction of heart and revealed sin. He's also the one that anointed people. That's why Isaiah says, and Jesus quotes Isaiah when he begins his ministry, 
Jesus quotes Isaiah as saying, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to preach good news, quoting the prophet Isaiah. So we have this, if you look at the law was a, was a railroad track, and the engine was to pull the person along in grace by the power of the Spirit, and the coupling between the car and the engine was faith. So in the Old Testament, like the New Testament, salvation was by grace through faith along the track of obedience or sanctification. So even in the Old Testament, the way Jews had relationship with God was through the grace that was imparted to them by keeping the law. They kept the kosher laws as far as food is concerned. They kept the ceremonial laws. They kept the holiday laws. Everything they kept, God demonstrated grace on them. But if you know the history of Israel, they didn't do it quite uh, consistent. They broke the law more than they kept it. God's grace was, was his, his, actually his justice was demonstrated toward Israel more than his grace because they, they had a hard time keeping the law. And, and part of it was the leadership's problem that every time they decided the law wasn't quite sufficient, they would add something to it. So they would take the law and they would keep adding on and adding on and adding on. That's why when the Pharisees confront Jesus about the disciples not washing their hands before they eat the grain of the field. That's not in the law, but it was in the Talmud. It was in the regulations that the priests had made up over the years. And so they had made it harder and harder and harder for people to follow after God and keep the law. And so we have this train track. But what happened was this. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, took this train track that was on the ground and they picked it up and they leaned it against the doorway to heaven and they said that Jews train of grace. They couldn't find God by riding the train of faith by the Spirit, that they had to climb this ladder to earn their way to have favor with God. And so it was lifted up, the end leaned against the door of heaven. And so the essence of, that's the essence of legalism, making the law into a long list of steps, which we use to demonstrate our moral fitness to attain heaven. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of Christians who are trying to climb that ladder. There are a lot of Christians who somehow believe if they pray more or they witness more or they give more, God's going to give them more favor. That they have to somehow climb the ladder to attain God's favor, forgetting that Jesus already paid the price for all of that. And our responsibility is to ride the tracks and not to climb the ladder. But all of Israel throughout history spent their time trying to climb the ladder to earn God's favor. And so while the track is on the ground, let's say Paul and Peter are riding the track, some of the ties, which could be ceremonial services like Purim or like Sukkot, some of those ties could be pulled out and the track will stay there. But if you take a ladder and you stand it up and you take a rung out of the ladder, you may not be able to get to the next level because it may be too big of a step for you to take. And that's the problem with the works, with trying to somehow earn God's merit, is sometimes we just don't have what it takes to take the next step. But when we ride the tracks, 
Jesus has already paid the price for us. The tracks have already been laid. Our job is to sit in the car and to go where he takes us. And so the latter is what Paul tore down. He tore down the legalistic misuse of the law. That's why he's confronting the Judaizers, saying, look it, guys, these Gentiles have gotten on the train track of grace, and you've taken it, and you've let, put a ladder up, and you told them they have to be circumcised. So there's something they have to do in order to stay on the track. And then he goes to Peter, he says, look it, all these people that have come to Christ, these Gentiles, are riding on the train track until you come along and say, oops, you have to climb the ladder, and that you have to stop eating non-kosher food, which were torn down. You know, Paul says, if I build again those things which were torn down, if I again put a ladder up and I try to climb it, I become a transgressor. I'm not on the track anymore. I'm not riding the freedom that I have in Christ and the freedom of grace. And we transgress the law, law of God when we try to erect the law as a ladder to heaven. Christians minimize the grace of God when we try to somehow work hard enough if we can have enough programs if we can you know spend enough hours praying if I could give enough money if I can visit the poor enough if I can do enough if I keep doing more God is going to find favor with me and the truth of the matter is God finds favor with you because of what Christ has already done not what you and I are trying to do so, what really makes a person a true transgressor of the law is not the neglect of ceremony, is not the neglect of diet, is not the neglect of circumcision, is not the neglect of holidays. It is the prostitution of the law. It is the prostitution of the gospel that says it needs to be a ladder instead of a railroad track that it needs to be something we work hard to climb as opposed to something we ride. And so we, through the law, died to the law that we might live to God. I want to, um, so you have to die to the law in order to live to God. Then, then here's what happens. As long as you're trying to earn your way to God by works of the law, you can't have a close, close relationship with God. The closer you get to God by works, the farther you drive him from you because he is on the train. God is on the train. Um, and today we're tempted. We're, we're not tempted or we're not compelled by the law. In other words, us here in the room, we don't have to keep kosher laws for food. We're, we've been Gentiles our whole life. We don't have to keep Jewish ceremonies. But somehow we still think we have to pick up the railroad track and make it a ladder. That we still have to work really hard to somehow find God's favor. And there are many who choose works over waiting. There are many who find it easier to do what they think is expected of them to climb the ladder as opposed to those who choose to sit and wait and ride the train and see where the Lord takes us. Um, I find that sometimes in my morning devotions, I get up and I would rather study than sit and be still before the Lord and hear what he has to say. I'd rather work on a sermon than sit and be still. Um, and, and those mornings, it's like these voices in my head, one saying, look, you're not doing a bad thing. 
Studying is not a bad thing. The Bible's a good thing. Study the Bible. Yeah, go for it. When I know the Holy Spirit's saying, no, I just want you to sit, and I just want you to listen. I just want you to share your heart with the Lord, and I want you to hear what the Lord has to say back to you. And I have this tension going back and forth between am I going to ride the train of intimacy or am I going to climb the ladder of works? And that ladder is not a bad thing. But here's what I've learned. It's better for me to ride the train to the ladder than to jump off the train and put the ladder where I think it needs to go. And so, and we see this in the story of two sisters uh, in the New Testament, Mary and Martha. Uh, probably as far as women are concerned, besides his mom and Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha are probably Jesus' closest female friends. Um, they're the sisters of Lazarus. And so Jesus and the disciples are at Mary and Martha's house. And um, as we pick up on the scenario... In Luke chapter 10, this is what it says. And a certain woman named Martha went that he entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him, meaning Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about so many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So as we look at these two sisters, I see one who's riding the train and one who's climbing the ladder. And the one who's climbing the ladder is upset because her sister's not climbing the ladder with her. She instead has decided to sit on the train and to go where Jesus takes her. So Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, and sitting at the feet of your master was the proper place for a disciple to be. That's, that's how you ride the railroad tracks. You, you, you ride the tracks of grace. You sit at the feet of Jesus. I did a study once. I did a series of messages on things that happened at the feet of Jesus. It's incredible the things that happened to the people who sat at his feet. But, you know, Paul said, look it. I am who I am because I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. In Acts chapter 22, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are all today. So sitting at the feet was a part of the learning process of being discipled and becoming like your teacher. Paul became like Gam Gamaliel. Mary was in the process of becoming like Jesus. Martha instead went to the kitchen. There's nothing wrong with the kitchen. I personally like the kitchen. I like to cook. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing stuff. There's a time to cook. There's a time to do stuff. But if you're sitting at someone's feet, you can't climb the ladder because you're sitting at their feet. Mary sat close enough to really hear what Jesus was saying. Martha wasn't 
in a position to hear like Mary was because Martha was off scampering around being busy about herself, doing the stuff that she thought was necessary because Jesus was in the house. You can't be on the run and hope to hear Jesus on the way. The train can't be going this way and you be climbing the ladder and Jesus teaching on the train and you somehow think you're going to hear him while you're climbing. And the Bible talks about it. The Bible's clear about it. Psalm 91.1 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, which we just spent a year going through, he says, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There is a time, there is a season, there is a responsibility that we have as those who have been justified by faith to go to a secret, quiet place to have intimate communion with Jesus who will then take us to the place that we do deeds because the Bible says faith without works is dead. We do things not to earn his favor. We do things because we love him and this is what he directs us to do. So, now, Mary's priority was being close to Jesus. Mar Martha's priority was serving Jesus and serving the others. And again, serving is not bad. Serving is servant. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, <clears throat> be a servant of all. So servanthood is a part of greatness. So Martha wasn't doing a bad thing. Um, she just was not doing the best thing. She was doing a good thing. But at that moment, she wasn't doing the best thing. Basically, Jesus was saying this. Look it. We know where the kitchen is. We, we know how to get food. Your sister has chosen the better thing to sit at my feet. So Martha, if I'm going to tell anybody to stop doing what they're doing, I'm not going to tell Mary to get up and help you. I'm going to tell you to sit down and get on the train. Because that is the better place right now. You can serve us later. But right now, the better place is on the train. Martha was careful and troubled by that that wasn't the best. Again, go back to me. When Jesus is calling me to sit and to have conversation with him, to talk about things he wants to show me or to talk about things he needs to correct in my life, just because I'm studying for a sermon, just because I'm reading my Bible, just because I'm journaling does not mean I'm doing the best thing. It's not a bad thing I'm doing, but it's not the best thing. And walking in fellowship with Jesus is always about doing the best thing. When we choose the better thing, all the other stuff falls into place. When we choose the other stuff, oftentimes we miss where the train wants to take us. And we may eventually have to get on the next train that comes to get to that place, but God wants us just to trust him, to ride along, to understand that our salvation is not based upon what we do. Our salvation is based upon what Jesus has already done. It's not doing, it's being that is the important part for us. It's sitting at his feet. There are two possibilities in our walk with God. You can think about your ability, God's demand, and to earn his favor, by working on the ladder. You can, you can, that day will come, you'll stand before the Lord, 
And you'll say, Lord, look at all the stuff I did for you. Look at all the hours I did this, 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 and this. And Jesus will simply say, but what did you do with what I asked you to do? What did you do with where I was leading you? Or you can think of your inability, God's demands, and the free gift of justification by faith as we sit at his feet. Paul learned through his own long experience with the law that to live in close communion with God and to have his power, he had to give up legalism. He had to die. That the old self that loves to boast in its abilities and to climb ladders has to die. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And so Paul goes on and says, look it. There is a life after you learn how to die to the law. He says in verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. See, to get on the train, we have to be crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer about the ladder. It's about riding the train. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's, here's what I think it means to be crucified with Christ. That, that gruesome death of the all-glorious, innocent, loving Son of God for my sin is the most radical indictment of my hopeless condition imaginable. The crucifixion of Jesus is an open display of our nature. Jesus is a testimony to my brokenness, to my failure, to my sin. And when I see this and believe that he really died for me, then my proud self, which, loved to, which loves to display its power by climbing the ladder of morality, is daring dying <clears throat> so self-reliance and self-confidence can't live at the foot of the cross therefore when Christ died I died this is what Paul says later when he writes to the church at Corinth he said I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord that I die daily Paul's saying this, my boasting is not in the fact that I can climb the ladder. My boasting is in the fact that every day I die to myself, I die to my desires, I die to my sin, and I get on the train, and I ride the car, and I go where the Lord takes me, dying to my own ambitions and dying to my own ability. And we live in a culture where it's really hard for us to surrender our own ability and to make it an inability. In other words, we have a tendency to want to operate in our strengths and to do the things that we're really good at, and God calls us to put all that aside, to die to it. Jesus had all that nailed to the cross, and to simply get on the train of grace and ride in faith by the Spirit of the living God and to be justified as he drops you off to do the things that he asks you to do. So I have to die every day to choosing the ladder 
of doing over choosing the tracks of intimacy. Intimacy is the key to everything. What Paul is saying here is that the outward expression of superficial religion that is sown in legalism is not intimacy, is not a close personal relationship with God. It's the secret, quiet place of simply hearing his voice and doing what he says to do. And what remains, Paul says, is that Christ now lives in me. Christ remains. He rose from the dead. He took over where the life of pride and self-direction had died. The great and awesome mystery of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is what I believe conversion is. This is what I believe salvation is. A Christian is not just a person who believes in his head the teachings of Jesus. Can I tell you that um, when my wife goes and ministers to the homeless people, that there are, are people living down on the river who know this book probably better than half the people in the room. They know how to quote verses. They know everything about the Bible, but they don't know Jesus. So, in fact, the Bible says that even Satan believes in his head the teachings of the Bible. You see, a Christian is somebody who has died with Christ. It's someone whose stiff neck or stubbornness has been broken. It's someone whose stony hard heart has been crushed. It's someone whose pride has been slain. It's our life now mastered by Jesus. That's why Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer my, my hard-headedness. It's no longer my hard-heartedness. It's no longer my foolish pride. I have died to all that so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When we pick up the ladder, we begin to pick up pride. We begin to pick up hard-heartedness. We begin to pick up uh, a perseverance of self. And we forget who and what it was that Jesus died for. And so there's another way to say or to understand it. It's this. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a new I. It's, it's still me, but it's a different I. It's, there's a new I. I do still live, but it's a new I. It's no longer an I who craves self-reliance. It's no longer an I that wants self-control or self-direction or self-exaltation. The new I looks away from himself and trusts in God and loves the power that God proved on Calvary by setting us free from our sins. From the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we fall asleep at night, the new I of faith is in conflict or despairs and looks for Christ for protection and motivation, courage, direction, and able to walk in joy, peace, and righteousness. You see, a lot of people, in fact, I had, I had someone ask me this week. Um, 
he's taking my notes. He's going through Galatians after we go through it. And he goes, I just don't get it. He says, I don't have the problems the Galatians had. I don't have the problem Peter had. I don't have a problem with eating the food. I don't have the problem, uh, you know, that, you know, trying to make all these requirements. So how does this pertain to my life? The way this pertains to our life is the heart of the matter is this. To think that there is something more that's required for salvation than simply the work of the cross. To think there's something more we have to do to merit God's favor than to understand that God's favor is nothing you or I can ever, ever earn. You will never, ever do enough to earn God's favor. Jesus is the only one who could earn God's favor, and he did that by bearing your sin and my sin and going to the cross. We benefit from that, being justified by faith, believing that the work on the cross was fully sufficient for everything I will ever encounter and everything I will ever need, and it covered every sin I will ever commit, and it made a way for me in every moment of weakness. If we understand the sufficiency of the cross, if we understand that when Jesus died, when those nails were driven to his hands, when, his, when he bore our sin, and that moment when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, our justification began because our sin was put upon him. At the moment that God broke fellowship with his son, Jesus no longer said, Dad, Dad, where are you? Dad, why aren't we in fellowship? He said, my God, my God. He knew that the judgment of God was upon the sin of all humanity. And at that moment, because Jesus became sin for you and me, God could no longer have fellowship with him, and that fellowship was broken. And that was the moment of great sorrow and disaster and brokenness for Jesus. People think the suffering of the cross were the nails and the spear and the crown of thorns. That was suffering physically. The great suffering of Jesus was the moment your sin and my sin was put upon him and his father turned his back on him and broke eternal fellowship. And Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? And when we decide that of works ride the train of grace but somehow we need to pick up the ladder of works and try and do things to merit God's favor we say that what happened on the cross that day was not sufficient it wasn't enough and this is Paul's argument to Peter an argument to the people of Galatia if you think you have to be circumcised and be a Jew in order to be saved then you're saying the work of the cross wasn't enough. If you're saying, Peter, that you can no longer eat with, eat with Gentiles because they're not eating kosher, then you're saying the work of the cross wasn't enough. And if you're saying that you can sit there and beat yourself up and condemn yourself because you're not doing enough, but at the same time you're not sitting in the presence of Christ in an intimate position, let the Lord speak into your life and directing your path each day, you too are saying the sufficiency of the cross was not enough. And that's Paul's complete argument here to Peter and to the people of Galatia that the sufficiency of the cross was everything 
and is everything. It didn't, it cannot, it does not require anything more. It's a complete work. Nothing you can ever, ever, ever do will make it any more sufficient. It's done. We need to learn how to ride the train of intimacy, to stay on the tracks of grace, to allow God to bring us to the point where our gifts and calling, we get out of the train and we don't put a ladder up to heaven, but instead we get out of the train and we point people to the, to the conductor and the engineer on the train. And we point them to Jesus and we don't entice them to try and climb the ladder. We love them to get them on board on the train. And that's what we've been called to do. And that was Paul's point to Peter. That was Paul's point to the people of Galatia. And that's why this book to the Galatians applies to you and me today. God's message to us is it's done. It's finished. It's all sufficient. Our job is to die to ourselves every day and to live for Christ. And in doing so, we complete what God has called us to do. The final thing Paul says, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain, which is what I just said. If righteousness comes through climbing the ladder, then Jesus didn't have to die. We could all just pick up a ladder and climb. It didn't work for Israel. It doesn't work for us. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. I don't put aside this train that runs on the tracks of grace. It is only on this train that I walk in the full, complete work of what Jesus did on the cross. Anything else makes the death of Jesus superfluous, makes it of no value. I remember about six years ago, I was with a, um, a group of nuns in New York City. They're called the Sisters of Life. And uh, their whole call in ministry is to bring in young women who are pregnant who don't want to abort their babies and to give them a place to live and to have their baby. And so we had spent, um, we had spent a great amount of time with them. And uh, one of the head sisters... We would go to prayer sessions with them. And, and I got into a theological debate with one of the sisters because she believes that God in his great love on the day of judgment will give everybody one more chance to repent before he condemns them to hell. That's part of the foundation of Catholicism. That God... Why did Jesus have to die? He judges you. And I said, if that was the case, why did Jesus have to die? That just means I can live however I want to live. And then when I see hell and I see heaven, I want to go, yeah, I'll take heaven. Okay, I repent. It, it completely alleviates the necessity of the cross. And that's what Paul's saying here. He said, to say that the grace of God is not sufficient for us. See, if we can stand on the precipice of hell and then repent, we, we never experience the grace of God. And so we who are so concerned about the honor of Christ 
just think about what we make the cross when we spend our time trying to erect a ladder of justification, trying to raise a ladder to accomplish our own works to somehow merit God's favor. If justification through the law was enough, Jesus didn't have to die. And so, and it doesn't make Jesus an agent of sin. It makes, we stand beneath the cross of Jesus and we do not nullify grace when we stand there. So if doing supersedes being, then love is of no value. Let me say that one more time. If doing supersedes being, then love is of no value. We, being justified by faith, need to start each day on the train. We need to get on the train of grace. We need to, the first thing we need to do each day is confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We then begin conversation with him about our day. There are stops along the way where we'll get out and we'll do works of service. But our life is to ride the train. It is not to see how many times we can get off the train and do works. Without the train, you're never going to arrive at the place God wants you to use your ladder. You're always getting up to the place where you want to use your ladder and do what you want to do. Um, we all have gifts and callings. Some people's gifts and callings are more demonstrative and more in the open than other people's. But there are people who had one call in life, and that was to establish relationship with one person to bring them to Christ so that they might fulfill their destiny. Nobody knows much, or most people don't even know the name of the pastor that led Billy Graham to the Lord. But if he hadn't been faithful to do what God called him to do in that little church in North Carolina, Billy Graham may have never given his heart to the Lord and we may have never known the greatest evangelist in the 20th century. See, there may be one person God has put in your life to touch and that's what your whole life is all about. There may be one thing God has called you to do and it may look like others around you do so much more, are so much more spiritual, know more than you know, but here's the thing. If you're riding the train every day, Wherever he stops you to get off is the only place you need to be. And you don't need to look about who got off at another place or who did another stop. You just need to be faithful to who God made you to be, who he called you to be, because the rewards are for the faithful. Faithful, and he says this, because you have been faithful in a little, I will make you to Peter punch. So, Paul says to Rick, Paul said to Peter, Paul says to everybody in the room, ride the train of grace, justification by faith in Christ alone. And when he gives you the opportunity to serve, love people well, but then get back on the train so he can love you well to get you ready for the next stop. All right, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that even a letter written to a bunch of churches thousands of years ago still speak to us today. And that, God, we are ever pressing toward the call, toward the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. God, we are aware every day that um, in our weakness you are made strong. And, Lord, I ask that we will be known simply as those who loved well because we learned how to receive your love. We learned how to sit at your feet. We learned how to recognize your voice. And we learned how to obey that which you asked us to do, knowing that we're doing it out of love and not out of some form of servitude to try and earn something. We have been justified by faith, and yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.